we have been going through the book of Daniel. And we have been learning a lot of lessons. We have learned that God is still sovereign, that God is not defeated by the nations. He is the judge of the nations. That's what the word Daniel means. God judges. And we have seen his sovereignty on display. We have seen it through the uncompromising faithfulness of Daniel. We have seen it through dreams and visions that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar about the very destiny of this world. We have seen it in his protection of Daniel's three friends. And we have seen it in his humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. And we have seen it in his compelling driving forward of his plan over and against Belshazzar of Daniel 5. We have seen it that he is still sovereign in Daniel chapter 6 under a new regime of Medo-Persia. He is still sovereign. And all of that compounding evidence, all of that compounding illustration of sovereignty demonstrates this, that our God is in absolute control and therefore history as Daniel 7 is headed in a singular direction and there is no king and there is no rival and there is no competitor for God has given all glory, sovereignty, and power to one and only one and that is his son and that is what Daniel beholds in the middle of the chapter. That is the moment he is waiting for. It has captured his heart. It has encouraged him that the saints will win and that evil will be defeated and that because he put it at the center of the book because it is the center of his heart that is what has kept him enduring all of this time. There are many, many glorious truths that we have learned. Truths that give us hope. Truths that give us perception. Truths that renew our mind and take us off of the things of this world and onto the things of Christ and onto the things of real substance that really matter. And they encourage the weary heart, just as they did for Daniel. And those are the main things. Those are the main lessons, the dominating themes and theological truths of this book. But that being said, they are not the only truths. They are not the only lessons. They are not the only ideas found in this book. We have had to cover things rapidly, and so we have almost, in a sense, gone through a bird's eye view of Daniel, but we could slow down and we could learn a lot. Because those truths, though main and formidable, they are not the only ones. It's really fascinating. We had a professor at the Master's University at one point in time. His name was Dr. Wong. And he loved the book of Daniel. And you say, why did he love this book? Well, for one, his name was Daniel. (laughs) So he really liked the book. That's what he said all the time. I'm Daniel. I like Daniel. And on top of that, his speciality was in prophecy. He had written books and articles and multiple publications on the issue of prophecy. His dissertation dealt with prophecy. He was immersed in this subject. It was his speciality. And so, of course, Because Daniel covers that issue, and it is a capstone and a cornerstone of that matter, it made a lot of sense for Dr. Wong, who was so aptly named in the providence of God, Daniel, to like Daniel. But it was fascinating. I was in a class with Daniel Wong on Daniel, and a student asked Dr. Wong, what is your favorite thing about Daniel? Now, there's like 12 chapters of favorite things that you could come up with. And we all expected, given Dr. Wong's 
emphasis on prophecy, to talk about some detail of prophecy, or how Daniel emphasizes premillennialism, or a future for Israel, or makes this important theological point. But this is what Dr. Wong said. I'll never forget it. He said, my favorite thing about the book of Daniel is what it teaches on prayer. That got everybody's attention. All of us young students, we just wanted to argue. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Wong, he read Daniel to learn how to pray. And indeed, the book of Daniel is filled with profound prayers. In Daniel 2, when Daniel is seeking to understand and know the dream of the king, the dream that the king may not have even remembered or recalled fully. He did not know it. He did not grasp it. And so his life, that is Daniel's life, is on the line. And so he's seeking after God all night to know the content of its dream as well as its interpretation. And when God finally reveals it to him, he has the most amazing prayer in Daniel 2. And he says, God, all power and might belong to him. And he is the one who changes the times and the seasons. And the one who raises up kings and humbles them. He is the one who gives the mighty their might. He is the one who gives those who have knowledge their knowledge. He is therefore the, the source of all knowledge and power. Sometimes we think that our might is parallel to God's might. It's just compartmentalized and siphoned off of him, partitioned off of him, parallel with him. Maybe that's the way we feel about our knowledge as well. But Daniel, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he understands that that's not the case. There is no might. There is no true power. There is no true knowledge. There is no true wisdom outside of God. And anything we have comes from him. Everything we have comes from him. We can never argue that we have anything on our own because it is all derived from him. And we share it with him, or really, truly put, he shares it with us. And therefore, we always have to be humble before him because that's how reliant we are. Anything we have that is good, any might that we have, it isn't because we had it in and of ourselves. It is not because we had it innately. It is derived from him. And Daniel prays this and says, Blessed be God for all of this and for being so gracious, being as such, to reveal the dream to me. You say, that is a profound prayer. That is filled with theology. I wish I could pray like that. Why don't I pray every morning like that? Amen. I agree. Now be humbled more. The kid is 12 when he prays that. He's a little kid. Some people think he's eight. I've never prayed like that when I'm eight. I probably won't even pray like that when I'm 80. Daniel is an amazing book on prayer. And in Daniel 9, this is the road less traveled perhaps in Daniel. There is an amazing prayer there as well. Amazing. So rich and so profound. And you say, are we going to get into that today? No, because we're in Daniel 8, not 9. <laughs> We'll save that for later, but let me just tell you how good it is. The other day, I was collating notes for the MacArthur Old Testament commentary, and I was collating all of Dr. MacArthur's notes on Daniel 9. 
and it's 120 pages, single-spaced, Times New Roman, 11-point font, one-inch margins, of notes on Daniel 9. And I thought, on the one hand, really? This is going to be so much work. I'm going to give it to Joe. So, um... (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) On the other hand, I thought, scanning through the notes, the vast majority was how to be a man or a woman of prayer. And so this will be rich. It will be rich to go through. And this is just tidings of future things, but it's a reminder There's a lot of prophecy in the book, amen. There's a lot about God's sovereignty, amen. There's a lot about God's resilience and God's son and his centrality, amen and amen and amen. And we can never lose that. But there are a lot of other lessons too. Don't forget, there are a lot of other lessons too. And this morning, we will save prayer for Daniel 9, future attractions. This morning, Daniel models to us how to receive the word of God. That's a lesson too. You see, Daniel receives a lot of divine revelation. In fact, that's all he's basically doing in the book. It's 12 chapters, essentially, of Daniel receiving the word of God. And tucked within that reception, tucked within this divine disclosure is Daniel 8 verse 1, where Daniel expresses his reaction to being a recipient of such divine prophecy, of the inspired word of God. And there is a lot of profound things that Daniel instinctively models here. And that matters. Often in our lives, we don't think a lot about how to receive the word of God. Even though throughout the scripture, there is always an emphasis on listening to God's word and and loving God's word and not being angry against God's word. And there are so many phrases and so many verses that we should tremble before God's word. Isaiah 66, there is so much information on how we are to receive God's word. And sometimes perhaps to us, it's abstract. And sometimes to us, it's just forgotten. The Bible is just something we need to read. We need to get it done. And that's all we think about it. And if we, if we can even check that box off on our to-do list, we feel pretty good about ourselves. We can grow cold and callous to the Lord. It's so easy. We can grow cold and callous to his word. And we don't even realize it. But Daniel here, just recording his reaction under the inspiration of the Spirit, it is so charged with how the godly react to Scripture. And so we are going to cover Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. Daniel's reaction to receiving a dream. Daniel's reaction receiving a vision. Daniel's reaction to receiving God's word. And you say, it's one verse. It's In the third year of the rule of Belteshazzar the king, a dream appeared to me, I, Daniel, and and that was after what what appeared to me previously. That's not a very long verse. That doesn't seem like there's much in it. Well, I would say, based on how this breaks apart and 
is put together, there are actually seven attitudes. Seven attitudes. This is so profound. So amazing. Seven attitudes about Scripture. Seven convictions about Scripture. Seven responses and approaches and dispositions and proclivities about Scripture. And yes, they are our attitude. They are our dispositions. We follow Him as He follows the Lord. And these dispositions are not just about Scripture, amen and amen, but truly, as such, they are dispositions about our entire life before Christ. So seven of them, seven of them. And here we go. Here's number one. Number one, how do you approach the Word of God? How do you approach the Christian life? How do you receive the truth in your life? Here's the first one, patience patience. First phrase, I know it's a date. It sounds odd to get any theology from this, but Daniel wrote it for a reason. And he said, it's in the third year of King Belshazzar, the king. Third year. Go to Daniel 7, verse 1. When did he dream that dream? When did he have that vision? It's in the first year. So let's do a little bit of math together, shall we? Between chapter 7 and chapter 8, 3 minus 1, 2. Two years or so, yes? And remember, at the end of Daniel 7, and you can look at it with me, the Daniel 7, verse 28 or so, uh, even a little bit before that, but Daniel was greatly alarmed by what he saw. He was greatly disturbed. This is something which gripped his heart and his life. This is something that agitated him and that really, really convicted him. He was in deep distress and he had questions and he had concerns. This vision had puzzled him and he was deeply troubled by it because he knew that there would be bearing upon what he had seen, upon what would happen to him in the future and perhaps what would happen to also most certainly his people in the future. He had a lot of questions about the consequences of what God had said to him and he desired answers. His whole body is contorted to desire answers. And guess what God gave him for two years? Silence. Silence. He made him wait. You see, the faulty impression that we may have is we flip from chapter 7 to chapter 8. It takes us one second. And we think that's exactly how God did things with Daniel. It got him one second, and he got an answer. Daniel says, let me help you out. You flip one page, that's two years. That's three years. It's going to take some time. And this is a double-edged sword. This is a double-edged sword. God, does he have answers in his word? Yes, that's why Daniel 7 moves to Daniel chapter 8. God doesn't just leave Daniel hanging. God is gracious. God is good. He does provide answers in his time, but that's the double-edged sword because those answers come when? In his time, not ours. Not ours. There are so many passages about waiting on Yahweh. 
in life. Waiting even on his word. Psalm 31, 24, I wait on Yahweh. Psalm 38, or 33, verse 18, those who wait on his loving kindness. Psalm 38, verse 15, those who wait on Yahweh, he will answer them. This is challenging. This is challenging to be patient, to wait, especially, especially when we have all that we have nowadays. Amazon, two-day shipping. That does not help patience. That does not help it. And then you get a tracking meter that tells you how close it is. And it even tells you it's 10 doors away, five doors away, one door away. It's here. It's here. It alerts your phone. And then we are in the age of accessibility. You can search things on the internet. And if you're too lazy to search things on the internet, then you just ask the AI. And AI, tell me the answer to this question. It may tell you the wrong answer. You don't care. You got it. That's what we like about it. And then if you get really, really impatient, you just text the pastor. And they will give you the answer, maybe. And so we want answers all the time, immediately, right now. That's our heart. But sometimes God says, wait. And even to a godly man like Daniel, who didn't have a selfish question, who didn't have a self-seeking or self-serving question, God said, you're still going to wait. We need to come to the Lord with patience. Sometimes in life, sometimes in life, uh, you might say, well, maybe I could get the answer faster if I knew all of God's word. I don't, I don't actually have to, you know, ask somebody about which passage this is in or what passage would apply. Yeah, be impatient, learn the whole Bible, get answers quicker. I'm all for it. But even then, if you knew the whole Bible, sometimes you still have to wait because life and God's providence doesn't become clear about what parts of the Bible are being addressed until later. And even when that comes true, you still may have to wait because you're asking the Lord to do something, to, to uphold what he has said in his word, to flesh that out before us. And like the psalmist prayed, I wait on Yahweh and he will answer. I know he will but it's not yet. It'll be in the future. Brothers and sisters, what Daniel reminds us in the opening line is that you have to be patient when you come to the Word of God. We always want the answers, and we want them now, and we want clarity now, and we want resolution now, and we want everything now, and we want the information now, 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 now. Sometimes... You have to wait. And it might not just be two days, Amazon shipping. It may be two years. It may be most of your life. You will have to wait. People get angry at the word of God and angry at the Lord, not because he's doing anything wrong or he's off schedule, because we're impatient. And we are not trained to wait. Learn like Daniel learned. Wait, wait. You may have a question, and you'll see this in Daniel 8, and as you see it in Daniel 7. The weight of this revelation on Daniel's heart was so terrible, it actually paralyzed him for several days. And God still said, wait. 
Learn to wait. Learn to wait. Here's a second, here's a second attitude about the Word of God that Daniel has. He not only had patience toward it, that's the first point. Here's the second of seven. He understood it as divine revelation. He understood it as divine revelation. Notice what the text says. This is the vision that appeared. This is the vision that it appeared. Fundamentally, the term vision, just like the English word vision means, it is what you see, what you observe, what you have sight and insight into. And the reason vision is used here in part is because this is what God has insight into. This is what God sees, and this is a specialized term for vision, that you cannot see. That's very important. God sees something. This is supernatural sight. God sees something on a level in time and space, natural and supernatural, even in the future, that you cannot see. That on your own, you cannot see. No, that's the nature of divine revelation. This is what Daniel understood, and this is what made him so in awe. He is getting information that he cannot know on his own. And that requires two things. One is, there is a certainty. There is a certainty about the nature of the word of God. This is not just a suggestion. This is not just a hypothesis. This is not just a nice idea. This is not just one concept among many or one possible option or a possibility among others. This is what you do not know and what God alone has seen and therefore God has declared and therefore it is and it will be this way. Daniel understood that and he was saying, God saw something. God knows what is there. I don't, and that becomes the definition. You can't see this. And along with that, then, there has to be a recognition. There has to be a recognition that you don't know. You don't know. This is what God sees, and you don't know. In fact, you so don't know that you couldn't even figure it out on your own. That's why it says the vision had to what? Appear. God had to make it known to you. God had to make the vision appear. It wasn't as if you could just guess your way through it or logically deduce it or derive it in some way. God had to give you insight into what he alone knew, and he had to give the insight to you. That's what had to happen here. You are utterly dependent on God. It is both that you don't know this information and you could never figure it out on your own. It is only by God alone. And Daniel realizes this. This is something, what I've been given is something that is distinctly not me, not from me, not of me. Not that I could ever figure it out. Often we, we become arrogant toward the word of God because we forget its divine revelation. We forget you could never have known this. You could never have figured it out. And so we start to demote the word of God. We start to confuse our knowledge with revelation. We think, well, I know some things. I'm pretty smart. I got this. Oh, yeah, of course the Bible says that. And I, but, but I got some ideas too, and maybe we can make these ideas fit together. And then that's what really makes, makes a lot of sense to me. No. God knows. You don't. That's 
what this is. That's what Daniel emphasized here. I don't know the future. You don't know the future. None of us know what's going to happen. Only God does. So when he says it, that's it. And you can't second guess him because he's the only one who knows. And he's the one who knows what he's talking about. It reminds me what happens every year among freshmen at the Master's University. And I save this illustration for now so that in case freshmen do it, uh, they're convicted. So the, um, <laughs> but what happens is uh, the bio department often gets together and, and has a Q&A with some of the freshmen. And what inevitably takes place is that when a freshman raises their hand and says, I have a question, and they're addressing it to the Bible faculty, the Bible faculty actually don't answer it because other students start to chime in and answer the question for the faculty. They say, oh, I've been carrying that power before. Yeah, this is what I think about it. And then what I think about it, and what I think about it, and what I think about it. And then my boss, Dr. Halstead, the dean of the, the school, he comes down and says, is there a reason why they pay us? And I said, hey, look, this is the greatest job ever. You don't have to do anything, and you get paid. I mean, they are answering all the things for you. And, and another professor says, why is it that students just so often think they know so much more than the people that they're paying to give them the answers. And we laugh and we sneer at that. Amen. (laughs) What do you think God does with us? A professor thinks they know something. Students think even more that they know something. God actually does. He knows everything. In fact, ironically, he even knew what you were going to say to him about it before you ever did it. Psalm 139, before ever a word is from my mouth, he knew. And here we are and we think, I got ideas. I think I can do it better. I think I could have said it better this way. I think this is a good idea, but I have a parallel good idea. Can you imagine saying that to God? We do it all the time when we read his word like that. This is not an option. This is not a discussion. Sometimes people say, this is how they approach their Bible. Oh, I'm just having a dialogue with God, a conversation with God. That's not how the Bible works. The Bible is a declaration. It's a definition, and you accept it. It is for this very reason that the most common verb associated with receiving the word of God is not talk, it's listen, Listen, why? As we tell little kids, how do I know you're listening? Because your mouth is not moving. That's one of the fundamental life signs that you are listening. And for us, what we need to learn, like Daniel knew, this is God talking. He knows I don't. I could never figure this out on my own. And what hubris do I have to be able to say, I know, God knows, but we're kind of on the same level, and we kind of have same ideas, and we can iron sharpen iron. That is not how the scripture works. This is God talking, and we just listen, and we do it. That is the reality of divine revelation. There is patience when it comes to scripture, but we must, in our heart of hearts, be as clear as Daniel and realize this is all from God. This is all from God. What business do I have to try to negotiate or discuss the scripture with him? 
as if I can know more or be more clever or shrewd than him. Don't confuse our own reason for revelation ever. Daniel didn't. He knew exactly what this was. This is the vision. God sees, I don't. And he made it appear to me because I could never figure it out on my own. And so that's how I'm going to receive it. It is revealed. It is revelation. And so there's patience, point one. And this is divine revelation, point two. Point three, this is amazing. But the word of God is pertinent. It is pertinent. This is another attitude we need to have with scripture. It is pertinent. Why does God reveal to Daniel in Daniel 8 a vision? Why not give him a dream? Have you ever wondered that? Why does he give dreams to some and visions to others? And for that matter, what's the difference between a dream and a vision? Because they're both pretty supernatural. Well, there's a fundamental physical difference, I will grant it, between a dream and a vision. Dreams happen when you're asleep. Visions happen when you're not. But you might say, okay, well, that's a really, I mean, yeah, that's true, but is that really a helpful distinction? Because why does God do one or the other? Well, hear me out, and this is what God's design is. You will observe that dreams happen when God is dealing with Gentiles. When God is dealing with Gentiles. Think about this with me. Joseph, he interprets dreams, yes? But was he inside the land of Israel when that happened? No. Where was he predominantly? In the land of Egypt. Daniel, he has to deal with a lot of dreams too. But was that when he was a little kid in Israel? No. That is where he was where? In the land of Babylon and Medo-Persia for that matter. He was outside of the land of Israel. God gives dreams when Gentiles are involved. He switches to visions when it is about his own people. Isaiah has a vision. Amos has a vision. Jeremiah has a vision. Ezekiel has a vision. Dreams happen, though, for Gentiles. And so why does God give Daniel a vision here, whereas he gave dreams in the past? Because in the past of Daniel 1 through 7, God was dealing not with the Jews, but with the Gentiles. He was talking to people like Nebuchadnezzar. He was talking about nations, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And the emphasis was that God was sovereign over those foreign kings, and God was sovereign over those pagan nations, and sovereign over all history and all the world. And yes, he was talking to those nations, and about those nations, and about his people Israel. But in Daniel chapter 8, he gives a vision, because he's no longer talking about his people. He's talking to his people. He's talking to his people. And he is saying, yes, I know, Daniel. I've told you all of how history will play out. Yes, I know, Daniel, that I'm sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. But if you're wondering how that's going to affect you and your people, Daniel 8, I'll give you a vision. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. In fact, to accentuate this, And to illustrate this further, Daniel 2 through 7, more or less, is written in Aramaic. That is the language of the nations. Daniel 8 switches back to Hebrew. Just for God to signal, I'm not just talking about you. I'm talking to you. I want to give you information that applies 
to you. And that's what Daniel 8 through 12 is all about. How you should live, perceive, understand, receive, anticipate, expect, prepare for everything that God had revealed in Daniel 1 through 7. It's the applications of it and the implications of it and the encouragement of it, even though there is a heaviness to it. But all of it is pertinent to God's people because he designed it this way. Understanding the difference between about versus to is a huge distinction. It reminds me, and I love my students at the Master's University. I I genuinely love them, and I also love how they provide me illustrations. Uh, They were just on my heart as I was writing this message, so it just comes out. But I remember one of my, well, actually not just one. There, There are quite a few like this, but they come into my office and they say, Dr. Chow, I think a girl likes me. I said, really? (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) And I said, why do you think that? They never got that joke. Anyway, but the, uh, (laughs) and they say, why do you think that? And they said, oh, this girl I heard, she always talks about me, talks about me to her friends, talks about me, talks about me. Do you think we should get married? (laughs) I said, brother brother, dear brother. Well, one, does she, what does she say about you? I mean, <laughs> good or bad? <laughs> Think about this. Do you need to repent? You know, be careful. Second question, there is a massive difference between a girl talking about you and a girl talking to you. Has she ever spoken to you before? No, Dr. Chow, not ever. Well, then if that's not going to happen, you're never going to get married. (laughs) There's a massive difference between about and to. About can be very meaningful, don't get me wrong. But to, when God speaks to somebody, that's amazing. That's amazing. And and Daniel never forgot that. He never forgot that. He, He carefully worded the nature of this revelation to remind Israel, this isn't just a message about you. This is a message for you. This is a message to you. And that's what God does. He doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to. There's nothing that obligates him per se to make sure that he addresses us, but he does. He does. That's amazing that he would ever do that, not just talk about us, but talk to us. And you might say, well, of course, this is talking to the nation of Israel, and we are not the nation of Israel. How do we really know that God has crafted his word to address the saints? Brothers and sisters, you need to understand that people in Israel were asking the same question. Everyone after the book of Exodus, they're saying, I never went through an Exodus. I never had that happen to me. Why should I care? But God says, but I'm not just writing about them and for them. I'm writing to you. In the book of Deuteronomy, God says, I was not just merely addressing your parents on the mountain. It was as if I was addressing you. God said all over the place, and it's even recorded in the New Testament, that these things are written not just for their sake, but for your sake on which things are about to come. We see that in 1 Peter. We see that in Romans 15. We know that all of the word of God is what? Profitable, not just inspired, but profitable for rebuke and reproof and teaching and etc. Why? Because when God wrote this, and even in 
the Psalms that mentions this. Psalm 102, this is for a generation yet to come. God wasn't just writing just to the audience right in front of him. Amen, he did that. But it was his intent to communicate through them to his people, to you and to me. That is the design and the wisdom and the profundity of this book. You can't just treat this book as if, well, it's just about them. It really doesn't pertain to me at all. God didn't really have a message for me at all. That is not ever God's intent in this book. And Daniel understood that. And that's why he said, this was a vision revealed to me. It was a vision for you. It was designed so that it's a signal that he's not just talking about you, he's talking to you. We don't just treat the Bible as an artifact of history, just something out there. God says it's to you. Do you treat it as direct and pertinent? And so we have patience and we have divine revelation and we have pertinence. And fourth, we have humility. We have humility. This perhaps is the most important point of the entire message. In fact, it is the very observation that fuels and drives the entire tone and purpose and intent and proclivity of this entire verse. The way Daniel says what he says and the reasons that he says what he says and the purpose and the end of what he says and why he says it is directed by the next phrase. Yes, he says in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me. And then he says, these are the two important words. I, Daniel. I, Daniel. Now you do realize it's really pointless from an objectivist kind of point of view to say, I, Daniel. We know it's you, Daniel. Your name is the book. Who else is talking right now? You're the only one who's talking. You're the narrator. You're, it's an autobiographical in some ways. We know it's you, Daniel. You don't need to say it again. That's completely redundant. And I agree with you. And that makes the point. He's not just saying this to give a biographical reminder that it's me, Daniel, who's writing this book. And I'm the guy who's seen these things. We know that. This is an emotional expression. And he wrote it down because he was so humbled to receive the word of God that he was in shock. And he wrote, I, Daniel, I, I got the word of God. I was just me. Just, I was the one to receive it. That is why he said the words. I, Daniel. That's what drives the entire tenor of verse 1. It is because he is so humbled by the word of God. It is because he is so in awe of the word of God. And it is because he is so humbled by himself about receiving the word of God. He is in total shock that he could even know and handle and be a recipient of the scriptures. That is what is going on there. And such humility requires you to be humble about two areas of life. It requires you to be humble about two areas of life. One is this, 
you have to be humble about yourself. I mean, if some of us were Daniel, we'd say, of course I'm the one who received the revelation. Who else is there? All these other Jews have apostatized. It's either me or my three buddies. Those are the only contestants here. And since I've got a track record of receiving it, it makes the most sense that I'm FedEx. I mean, that's how we would think about the life of what's going on here. Well, of course I'm the one. I'm the logical choice. That's what we would start to be tempted to say. We would, Daniel here, it, you just see his raw, instinctive honesty. He truly believes he's nothing. He truly believes he doesn't deserve it. He truly believes there is no conceivable reason that God would ever give this to him, despite the fact that there are seven chapters of conceivable reasons why you would give this to him. He doesn't believe it for a second. He doesn't believe it for a second. Brothers and sisters, humility is not making ourselves low. In fact, the Greek term for humility used by Paul in the New Testament is not becoming lowly, it's think lowly. Think of yourself as you are. You don't have to become lowly. God already did that job for you. You are, you and I, we're all lowly. We don't have to work on that. We are that. Humility is just understanding who you really are and believing it and embracing it. And Daniel's instinctive reaction here He doesn't feel like he's entitled. He doesn't feel like he's deserving. He doesn't feel like he should have it. He doesn't feel like this should be automatic. He doesn't feel like this is obvious. He doesn't feel like he merited it. He doesn't have that perception at all. Why? Because he views himself as nothing. Brothers and sisters, when we are rewarded or when we are praised or whatever takes place or blessed, is our first and honest reaction. I can't believe it. Because that's ridiculous. Why would anyone say that about me? Then you know you're humble. Then you know you're humble. Because finally you believe and you see yourself for what you really are. None of us wise. None of us mighty. None of us noble. And Daniel embodied that. Here is perhaps one of the most successful, eligible individuals to receive the word of God. And what makes him all the more eligible to receive it is he doesn't believe that for a second. That is Daniel. And that should be us. You say, well, there was two aspects to having such humility. One was about self. What's the other one? Simple. A humility before Scripture. Scripture. Daniel honestly believed that the word of God was so sacred and what God revealed was so spectacular. It truly is divine revelation. This is the things you always had questions about, but you could never figure out on your own. You could never know on your own. It was the mystery of mysteries. It was a secret. And so for God to actually reveal such a secret, that's not what you try to combat him about, negotiate about. You just are in awe of that because of what it is. There is no greater privilege and there is no greater honor than 
to be able to receive what no one can figure out on their own. And only God in his grace and mercy and kindness would reveal. And he said, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to handle it. I don't deserve to hold it. I don't deserve to receive it. That's what he believed with his whole heart. And because of how he viewed himself and how he viewed the scripture, he says the words, I, Daniel. I can't believe this. Why? You couldn't, you, you, this is so amazing. This is so spectacular. And look at who I am. How would you bring these two things together? In scripture, we have so many exhortations that we should come humbly before the word of God, that we should have humble awe, that we should understand we don't deserve this, that we should come before we are trembling before it. But we forget so often. We forget. We treat our Bible, even the physical Bible, cavalierly. And, and I'm not saying you need to idolatize uh, your Bible or something like that, not by any stretch of the imagination. But it may reflect, it may, operative word, reflect a heart attitude. We just throw it in our car. We just throw it around in our home. We don't even think a second thought about it. This is the precious word of God. This is revelation that he gave. He didn't have to give it to you. And we treat it sometimes worse than we treat other books. We forget it. We don't know where we put it. Daniel would never do that. Because he was so in awe that God would entrust this to us. And when we read our Bible, sometimes we're equally cavalier. We say, well, I just got to check this off. Just got to get it done. It's good for me. It's like a vegetable. Look, Daniel does not, I mean, we actually, we know that he prizes vegetables. I get it. And so my illustration backfires. But <laughs> you understand, in the Abner world of vegetables, Daniel does not view the word of God like a vegetable. This is not just, oh, it's good for me, so I'll have to endure it. This is my greatest treasure. Sometimes when we teach the word of God or disciple others, we, we just wish our influence was more, our, our bigger, our greater, our grander. And we, don't, and we forget, but this is the treasure. And you don't deserve this. And I don't deserve this. And at the moment you think you do, you've lost humility. You've lost the height of what the word of God is. And you've lost the despairing depths of who we are. And Daniel never lost it. After all these years of service to the Lord, after receiving revelation upon revelation, promotion upon promotion, the ability to interpret dream after dream after dream, and now being revealed a vision, he never lost it. Never. Never. He never lost the wonder of the word of God because it's from God, and so it's our treasure. We need to be able to say, brothers and sisters, I, Daniel, we need to be able to say with an honest heart, I can't believe that I get to read this, that God gave this to me. I can't believe that this passage, so encouraging, that verse, so magnificent, this promise, so true, that God told me that. I can't believe it that he would do that for me. We need to come to the Bible with humility, with an amazing humility, 
about ourself and about the Scripture. It is exactly what Paul says. We have been given the mysteries of God. The mysteries of God. And we don't peddle them. We are their steward. We are their steward. That's what we want to do. We want to handle this with care. And we want to handle it always, every time we open our Bible, with a great sense of undeservedness. Because we don't deserve this book. We don't. That's a fact. We don't. And that's when you're really humble before the Word of God. Well, that's the fourth point. The fifth point is this. The Word of God, our attitudes toward it are not just that we need to be patient, not just that it's divine revelation, not just that it's pertinent, not just that we need to be humble. We need to remind ourselves that this Word of God, I love this, it's complete. It's complete. Notice the next word after Daniel says those, that fateful phrase, I, Daniel. It says after. It says after. And there's a reason why Daniel underscores the word after, because there was something before. And this connects, this chapter, chapter 8, connects with what is before. It completes what was said. That's why this comes after something else. It is what extends it. It is what finishes it. It's what fulfills it in the sense of providing a circumspect revelation. Sometimes we often think, oh, I wish God would say more on such and such an issue. Or we wonder, are, are we sure that God said, has said all that needs to be said on a given topic? All those sentiments make me laugh. I think it's really funny because we can't even get through 66 books of the Bible in a year. And yet we're asking for more? If you can, first things first, go through all 66. And if then you really feel like there's something missing, then let's have a conversation. Let's not have the conversation when, we're all, when, you, when you can't, when you in the same sentence say, man, I wish God would say more about this, but I, I only know seven verses. I mean, what, which one is it? Pick and choose which way you're going to go. But sometimes we wondered, is this really complete? But here's the proof that this Bible is all that you need. That this Bible is sufficient. That everything that God wanted you to know is here. And it's a simple proof. Daniel had questions. And when God could say something more on a topic and he wanted to, he what? He did. He did. When there was an opportunity to complete the prophecy and to complete the details that God intended for that prophecy, then God what? He spoke it. Which implies this. When he's done talking, he's what? He's done. Because he said everything. Because up to this point, whenever he has had more to say, he said more when he needs to say it, which means when he's done, he's done. That's the whole notion of canon. That's the whole notion of canon. Sometimes people think, oh, it would be cool to have ongoing revelation. That would mean that God is more conversational. No, 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 no. That God can speak once and speak sufficiently magnifies his ultimate wisdom. What's the phrase? Measure twice, cut once, or something like that? God measures once, cuts once. 
He just does it. It's all done. There are no repeats. Have you ever had these problems? It's the story of my life because I am definitely not God. And you have, oh, by the way, by the way, by the way, it's in the email chain. It makes the email chain so long, it takes a, a, an age to load an outlook. And it says, by the way, by the way, by the way. Why? Because we just, we keep forgetting what needs to be said. And so we just keep appending it on to message after message after message. God does not have, oh, by the way. He's just done because he tells you everything you need to say. What Daniel reminds us here is that, yes, chapter 8 is connected with chapter 7 for a simple reason, because God had more to say, and he's going to have a complete word. And after he's done, he's done, because there's nothing else that needs to be said. And we need to remember that this word is complete. Six, this word is also consistent. This word is also consistent. That's why Daniel says, it's not just that God revealed after, it's that God revealed after he revealed previously a dream to me. What he revealed previously by mentioning that phrase, Daniel 8 is connected with Daniel 7, and you will see so many parallels, and and we will talk about that more as we get into the text itself. Daniel 7 has animals. Daniel 8 has animals. Daniel 7 has animals with horns. Daniel 8 has animals with horns. And then if you really compare and contrast, in Daniel 7, you have four different major animals, and in Daniel 8, you have what corresponds to animals two and three out of that four in Daniel chapter seven. And so Daniel eight is absolutely consistent. It is absolutely connected with Daniel seven. And Daniel is reminding us of this because it is true of these passages. You have to read them together. But in so doing, he is reflecting on the very nature of scripture as a whole, that it is an interconnected whole. This is why we have the doctrine of inerrancy. No part of scripture contradicts the other. It just builds upon itself over and over and over. This is why we talk about the intertextuality of scripture, that everything in the Bible is interconnected because God wrote it that way and Daniel reflects it and Daniel Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. And finally, point 7, this word. And this is so astounding to remember. God's word has the answers. It has the answers. That's what Daniel remembers. You see, he says, he says, this is the dream that appeared to me. And in the end of verse 1, he says, and what appeared to me Previously, there is a personal component to God's word and to and in God's word to Daniel. There is a personal dimension there. And as we said, Daniel had questions. He had pressing questions. In Daniel 7:15, I love this. It says he was alarmed. And at the end of the chapter, after God explains things to him, it says he's greatly alarmed. <laughs> Poor guy. He thought by getting answers, it would make things better. It actually made things worse. And, he, and he's desperate to get some resolution. He's desperate to get more information. He's desperate to find some kind of solution to the questions and problems that he had. And by saying what he said in chapter 8, verse 1, he was saying, I waited on the Lord for two years, and I wanted answers. And you know what God provided To me, God provided me what? Answers. And that is the nature of Scripture, isn't it? That is the nature of Scripture. How amazing is it 
that we come to Scripture and we say, that is exactly the answer to the question I have in my life. How often do we come to the Scripture? That is the answer that I needed in this moment. That is the truth I needed to remember about God. That is the way that I endure. That is the way I persevere. That is the way I need to repent. That is exactly the sin that I'm guilty of and I need to change. That is exactly what I need. That is exactly what is required. That is exactly what I wanted at this time. The Bible, it has the answers to us. And Daniel said, that's what it gave me. That's what it gave me, because the scripture, God's revelation by nature, and all the truths that it gives, it is the answer. We don't just read through this for an academic purpose. We don't just read through this to check a box on the things to do. We don't read this certainly. Certainly we don't read this for to be a good luck charm, as if you get your devotions today and you'll just have a good parking spot in a couple hours. That is not how you read this book. You read it as a desperate man to get answers of what God has for us. And when God gives them, then what we say is this, I, Daniel, I can't believe that God, in his kindness and his mercy, he would write a pertinent word, he would write a revealed word, he would write a word that is undeserved to us. He would write a word. Yes, it took patience, but yes, it provides answers, and they're complete, and they're consistent. They're everything to me. And we would say, with Daniel, I, Daniel, I can't believe that God would give that to me. Brothers and sisters, by way of epilogue, in verse 2, this is how powerful the Word of God is. Daniel says, this is what I saw, and we'll cover this, Lord willing, next week. In the vision. And I was standing, and I, and I saw. I was in the, the Shushan, and the canal by Shushan. And he says, and I was in this region, and I had a vision. And you say, what's so significant about this canal and Shushan and everything? This is in the province of Medo-Persia, but it's more than that. You see... At this time, when Daniel was writing, Shushan wasn't even a real place. I mean, of course, there's longitude and latitude. But there was no canal. It hadn't been constructed. There was no capital yet. These two kingdoms had fallen and fought against each other, and they had collapsed. They don't merge together until after this prophecy is given. In other words, God didn't just transplant Daniel to a different place to see things. He transplanted Daniel not only to a different place, but a different time. That is what the Word of God does. It is so powerful. It transplants you into a different point of history. You want time travel? That's time travel. That's the real deal. That's the closest you're ever going to get to time travel right there. That's the power of divine revelation. And now do we understand this is divine revelation. You see what cannot be seen, what you could never figure out on your own. And yes, you may have to wait for it. You may need patience, but this is pertinent and it is powerful and it is complete and it is consistent and it will give you the answers that you need because if it needs to be, God will reveal what you cannot see and transport you to a different time and place so that you have everything you need for life and godliness. Amen? Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you.
thank you for your word. We don't deserve any of it. And may it be that if we ever, if we ever lose the awe, if we ever lose our unworthiness to be able to handle and to read and to love and to be in overwhelmed by and overcome by the truths of your word or that you give us, that you gave us your word, Lord, remove us from the ministry. But more than that, restore our hearts always so that we always have the heart of your faithful servant who upholds, who upheld the nature of your word, that is Daniel. And may it be, O oh God, every time we open this book, we're never cavalier. We're never flippant. We don't just treat it as a book, an academic topic, but it is your holy word. And we are so humbled that you gave it to us. In your name we pray, amen.